The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is the newscast for episode 244. This is the week, the month of February 2023. We don't do weeks anymore, Rob. Well, there's a week. There's a week in the month. There's a a day in the week in the month. Yeah. February 6th, that's the day, even though we don't actually release it on February 6th. That's the Monday. I don't know. That's kind of a weird thing. You can guess what day it actually is when we're recording this. Yeah. I'll say there's snow on the ground. There is snow on the ground. There's, it's sunny. It is sunny. Yeah. 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 We've narrowed it down to all of January or February so far. All right. Uh, Alex, let's jump into some quick housekeeping. We have a Slack channel. It keeps growing. It does. Lots of thriving conversation. How should people sign up if they want to be in Slack? You know, Rob, we have a website, colorado-security.com. You can go there. There's a form you can fill out and submit that. We will get your request. And uh, if you meet our stringent criteria, we will add you to the Slack workspace. Uh, That stringent criteria is being in Colorado and having an interest in in information security. Uh, While you're on the website signing up for Slack, you can sign up for our mailing list and get the show notes delivered into your inbox every week. We would also love it if you would rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher and tell a friend, let everyone who you know, know that Colorado Equal Security is awesome. You know, I was listening to a different podcast recently, Rob, and they actually changed their verbiage around saying that. They said, subscribe or follow because... Mm. I think on many of the, the things now, you're not actually subscribing anymore. You're just following the podcast. So if, yeah. if you're on Spotify or one of the ones where you can follow, please follow us. That sounds really good. Uh, also, we'd love it if you tell all of your friends about Colorado Equal Security, send them to the website, have them follow the podcast, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. We, we want more and more people involved in the Colorado Equal Security movement. And if you want to financially support the show, uh, we do have a Patreon campaign. We appreciate those folks who, who keep us running, uh, paying for those hosting costs, the emails, the all of the things, the yeah, the stuff that it, the, the the distribution of our podcasts um, costs money as well. So thanks for those folks who support. If you want to go, Patreon is also on Colorado-Security.com. Yeah. So let's jump into the news, Rob. We've got a follow-up story on several stories that we've talked about uh, over the last couple of years. Big, big news. Um, You know, we heard before that Casa Bonita is opening in May. They have now actually started hiring people so that you can uh, have wait staff and everyone else for uh, for that great day in May when they open. So apparently the first person they hired was Governor Polis to go do an advertisement for them for the fact that they're hiring 500 more people. Yeah. So the story we have is actually, well, I think there's a story, but also there's a YouTube video um, with uh, Dana Rodriguez, who's the... Uh, the executive chef there and, and Governor Polis talking about Casa Bonita. They're hiring wait staff. They're hiring cliff divers. You know, all of, they're probably Security hiring guards. Yeah, they're probably hiring the the person who has to be in the gorilla suit. I would imagine the gorilla is still going to be there. I have no idea. If so, do not get that job. That sounds terrible. <laughs> uh, cliff diving, though, sounds pretty awesome. I don't know. That's one of the, Hey, I used to be the gorilla at Casa Bonita. That's a, you know, a good party uh, line. For, for like a weekend. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> until until you realize that it's it's hard. Yep. Um, anyway, so if you're if you or someone you know is looking for a job, that might be a great place to go. And of course, um, I'm excited we're going to have Cassidy to open again soon. You know that there have been a lot of layoffs. I think um, th- this could be a place where people go look, go into Casabonita. It's a great place to work. I love it. All right, uh, another big uh, like cornerstone restaurant in the Denver metro area is the Fort up in uh, up below Morrison, right? Yep. I think it's officially. Um, they are celebrating 60 years as a as a restaurant. Um, they call it 60 years of Old West Wonder. And my first question for you is, how do you pronounce this this exclamation that apparently this server staff says? I, I would say, wah. Wah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Apparently, that's what they say. And it's an Old Western thing to mean, like, all right. Or, yeah, yeah I agree or something like yeah. that. Uh, I have eaten at the fort, and I don't remember anyone wahing before. But, either. But, hey, you know. Maybe no one was happy when I was there. So, you know, we uh, I don't always read every word of every article. I did read every word of this article. I did too. It was, was kind of long. It was kind of long. There's <laughs> a lot was, of stuff in but there. But it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, it. I mean, I didn't know that the this was originally created as a home for the family that they owned the restaurant. That It wasn't a restaurant initially. Um, it, it, it turned into a restaurant later. The daughter of the couple who created it grew up there along with a black bear named Sissy. Yeah. And apparently Sissy was 
was well known for hanging out in the bar and coming up to the bar to get some Coca-Cola out of a bottle. Probably not the healthiest choice for a bear or a human, but still interesting. Lots uh, of interesting stuff here. Uh, apparently they had a, a diabetic black bear. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the, uh, lots of cool stuff. There talks about the history and uh, you know how they navigated through COVID, uh, opening a food truck and sort of you know pivoting and changing things like a lot of restaurants had to do uh, during that time. And so... You know, the, the, through the 60 years, um, the Ford has been a lot the same. Recently, it's a little bit different, but still the same. So a couple of I, – I, I just love the random facts and love sharing those with the folks. Um, you know, I, I know that they sell bison steaks. I did not know that they are – this restaurant sells more bison steaks than any other restaurant in the United States. That's pretty cool. Um, I also did not know or did not remember that they sell gunpowder spiked whiskey if you want to go drink and also you want – gunpowder that's your that's the only place i'm aware of to do that it, it's the only place i am aware of as well they talked about um even one pe- step beyond that where you if you have the the bone marrow you can take the whiskey and put it in the the, you can use the, the, bone, the like empty straw, bone right? and yeah sort of use it like a like a shot glass i guess sort of and is it a shot glass or a straw i wasn't uh, sure well was. it's like a half it's okay. kind of it's the it's not half, it's not so. all the way through yeah, yeah. Okay. so that's so there's one of these questions recently going around on the internet is does it how many holes does a straw have Alex, how many holes does a straw have? Well, that's a good question. I is mean, it, I, I guess you could say one because yeah, it, you know all the totally. way through is one hole. If you yeah. want to call both but sides, is, but is it is know? a tunnel? Does a tunnel have one hole or two holes? Yeah, no, it, it's a, that's a great philosophical yeah. debate, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of great philosophical debates, if you haven't been up to uh, to the fort yet, you really got to do it. Are you really a Denverite if you haven't been to the fort yet? No, it, it's a lot of fun. You should everyone should go there at least once. All right, uh, next. Uh, we have an article talking about uh, about apprenticeships, which are, are making a comeback, apparently. Um, and these are not your grandpa's apprenticeships. So um, there's apprenticeships in lots of different things and lots of different companies around town are, are doing these programs. Uh, some of this is based on a bill signed into law in two, uh, 2021 setting up the State Apprenticeship Agency, which will launch in July. Yeah. Once again, a, a bunch of interesting stuff in here. There are apparently about 5,800 active apprentices in Colorado right now. There, that includes um, 473 employers that have apprenticeship programs. So quite a few companies are doing this. Uh, it, it didn't, you know, as I started reading it, I didn't immediately remember, but most apprenticeship programs come from trades, right? If you're, you're, you or an apprentice to a plumber or an electrician or, or those things. But they said a significant percentage of this has, has actually started be, to be in like white collar office jobs as right. creating a path instead of having to go to, to college to, to learn these trades, like actually doing it, you know, in, in the job, on the job training. Yeah. One of the things that I thought that was interesting about this article is I, I never really understood the, the full definition of what an apprenticeship is. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of obvious on the face of it, but um you know, they say all apprenticeships must be a mix of on-the-job training and classroom instruction, provide payment, and offer successful apprentices recognized credentials in their field, as well as supplying mentorship, right? So yeah. I usually think of apprenticeships like a, a slightly more formal internship, right? Right. Um, but this is, I mean, there's more structure around there's it. There's more than to I it. The, the fact that you have to have classroom education. Right. And you have to have a mentor. You, yeah. know, you have to have uh, a credential. At the credential. End. Yeah. All yeah. those kind of things. Uh, they they give a great example of one uh, a woman is it Narai uh, Navarro um, who started as an apprentice at Pinnacle Assurance. Uh, hello Jesse, uh, as a 16 year old high school student, and she did that program for three years. As she finished up high school, they offered her a full time job, which she accepted, and, and she she came in there as a ooh, I don't know if I have the, the name right in front of me, a workers compensation insurance oh no a claims agent. She came in as a claims agent. Um, so really awesome opportunity. They, they talk a little bit about her path and how much this gave her like flexibility to go, you know, high school, 16 year old high school student was started saving at that age and was able to, to go get a home like right after graduation. Pretty cool stuff. It is pretty cool. And of course, um, you know, one of the things they also talk about is with, you know, the rising costs of, uh, of college education, you know, this is a path for, for people that may not be able to afford to go to college and still, uh, get a, a path to a great job. Yeah, I, I love it, and of course, I you know we have a lot of folks listening who who help you know as leaders at their companies. I'd love you guys to to see if your company might be able to figure out a way to to invest in this and help help reduce the cybersecurity uh, talent or 
uh, number of employee shortage we have? Yeah, I mean, thinking about the that definition of what an apprenticeship is, I think security lends itself uh, perfectly to that because you know at the end, if you if you get somebody towards a um, security plus or a CISP or something else like that, right? Like that is that's the end goal of an apprenticeship, right? Like there's there's training, but there's also a credential, and we've yeah. got those sort of built in. Yeah. And of course, that gives you a really great way to bring talent into your organization and, and help create other, you know, help relieve the pressure we have right now, finding all that to great talent. Yep. All right. Our next one uh, is talking about a new bill. Um, this is a, a, a uh, Senate bill here in Colorado, SB 2360, uh, which is here to promote transparency and consumer-friendly practices for ticket purchasing. Now, you know, we, we know there's been a lot of controversy recently about, you know, how Ticketmaster especially handles ticket sales. Um, this is an interesting bill that's, that's not necessarily around trying to break up monopolies, but trying to get a re- to do away with hiding of fees and and, and stop having bots um, able to go buy a bunch of these tickets. Yeah, and and I think most of the the bills is really changing definitions of uh, of what things mean. So it makes it easier to uh, to go after uh, companies, people that are, are doing these things. For example, it expands the definition of de- uh, deceptive trade practices to include use of automation to buy tickets or circumvent limits, uh, selling tickets up front uh, without talking about the fees, as well as uh, selling tickets before you actually have them. Yeah, one one of the one of the big reasons that bots go buy up all these tickets is that they create a market to sell them before they have purchased them. Right. And they know that they're going to be able to, you know, because their bots are more effective at buying tickets than you and me just clicking into a web browser, they're able to go uh, sell a bunch of tickets above that ticket price, assuming that they'll sell, they'll buy them. And if they, if they end up not being able to get as many, that's fine. They just cancel the sale. And like, you know, we as a consumer get hosed. Um, so these, these are laws that will make that illegal. Um, Okay, so it's illegal. Now what? Well, now there's enforcement that has to happen, right? And and no one at this point knows how enforcement will work. But until you have a law in place to make it illegal, you can't really do anything about enforcing. Yeah, another thing they talk about in the article um, that is not as favorable is you know some of the things that they talk about in the bill is essentially giving the ticket companies more power to do certain things. And there is some concern from consumer groups that um, because the the large ticket companies would have more power, it could the law could backfire a little bit. Yeah, and, I, w- I was struggling to figure yeah. that out. I, I know that there were opponents of the bill who were saying that this would give more power to the ticket companies, but I didn't see it. I don't understand how it would give them more power as I read through this. It, it sounded like they, they would have a, and I don't know why they wouldn't have this power before, but um, the ability to you know essentially cancel ticket requests you know, on a whim. Um, well, it basically they could say it's because right. we think it's a bot right. or we think it's deceptive yes. practices behind it. But it, it may be that they wouldn't have to really tell you the reasons behind that, right? Like it could be, it could be capricious, right? Like, okay, we don't like you, Rob. So we're just going to cancel all your ticket requests uh, or something like that. Anyway, it, it seemed like it was probably something that should be thought about, but maybe yeah. not something that's um, a big enough deal to stop the bill from going forward. Yeah, it sounds about right. Anyway. Uh, good stuff. Moving on. Um, we have a, uh, a story here about a, a quantum computing company, Rob, that has come to uh, Colorado, uh, working with DARPA to try and move quantum computing forward in a much faster way. Yeah. So we've talked about atom computing in the past, I, I think, I, at least I know I've read about them. Um, and DARPA put out a call for companies who said, do you have any way that that you, you have any leads on techno, technical ways that we could try and and fast forward the adoption of quantum computing um, here much faster than the currently expected uh, about 10 years or so. So the there's three companies that came back to DARPA's proposal, uh, Atom and two other companies, Microsoft and PSI Quantum. Uh, and they were, well, actually there were probably more than that that came back, but right. those three were selected um, to try and, and push utility scale quantum computing forward in a, in a more rapid manner, I think. And the, the reason here is, you know, quantum computing is coming and the government wants to be ahead of it, right? Like they don't want it to be a something that we don't have a handle on if some other 
country right. gets there first. We want to be there first because it's going to be powerful when you can decrypt all of the, you know, the the typical encryption that's based on, you know, mathematically difficult to produce numbers. Right. Right. Um, anyway, this is interesting. I, I, I will say, and I read the part that described the, the different way that the, the three companies were planning to try and do this. And I didn't understand any of it. Yeah, I didn't really understand <laughs> it either, honestly. Like, so you're going to like put all the quantum in a, in a, in a circle? Right. <laughs> no, right. I, I don't understand it at all. Yeah, I, I, I understood that uh, one of them, maybe it was Adam is trying to uh, to make something the size of a closet. Yes, that's the only part yeah. I remember too. <laughs> uh, and, I, and then that made me go back to like, you know, back when IBM made the first main computers when they were like, you know, the size of a, of a room, right? right. And, and, you know, and of course they got much smaller over time and I'm sure this will happen here as well. Interesting stuff. Really cool to see Adam is planning to, to continue investing here in Colorado, um, growing out jobs. They, they plan to invest about a hundred million in Colorado over the next three years as they scale out their technology and their staff. Um, they have a 17,000 square foot building up, up in Boulder and, con- and they have, uh, plans to continue growing. It's awesome. Love it. All right, uh, moving on to our next story. Um, we, you know, we uh, we have two stories this month about the governor, um, and this one also about him. Uh, you know, he is either a a geeky nerd or a nerdy geek, or maybe both. Yeah, I, this is not even like a story. This is just <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I didn't watch it, but I did hear a little bit of coverage of of his state of the state address uh, in January, and and apparently he he had some he dropped some. Uh, pop culture, you know, nerd culture right. um, references in that. Well, this article is just talking, is just a, a rundown of the nerd culture references that Governor Polis had in that state of the state. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a little bit of Lord of the Rings, some Star Wars, uh, South Park, some other stuff in there. I mean, you know, Grant, you know, with the, the whole Casa Bonita thing, he's got to throw some South Park in there. And, and he uh, apparently he referenced the Bible, which this guy says is like a Bible nerd thing. Okay. Yeah. I guess anything anything could be nerdy, right? If you if you know it well enough. Shout out to um, to the great James Baldwin, liter- literary nerd. Shout out there. Uh, you know, I I don't know that I would have put um, you know, a Jewish guy being a a Bible nerd on my my checklist for Governor Polis. But hey, you know, everybody's got he's, their own thing. He's a he's a politician though. He's got to appeal. He's a to Renaissance everyone. man. He's, he's, a, he's a Renaissance he's, man. He's got a, a wide understanding of of education and and uh, and. Both cool and uncool things, apparently. Yep. All right. Uh, All right. Next one here, we have a an announcement that's uh, usually we don't get the names for these companies, but you, you know we we've talked a lot in the past about the EDC offering tax incentives for companies to come to Colorado, invest here, you know, move their HQ two here, whatever it is. Well, here the EDC. Uh, approved uh, millions of dollars in tax incentives for a cybersecurity company to to have up to 500 new employees hired here over the next eight years. And then we did get the name, right? Yeah. And this one was, it was interesting because I feel like there was an article that came out that didn't give the name and it was, hey, there's this potential project. And I don't know, like a couple weeks later, like another one followed up. Oh yeah, yeah, we got it. It's these guys. Anyway. Yeah, somebody leaked it. Yeah, no, you and I couldn't get the leak, but somebody else got the leak. <laughs> uh, anyway, the company is Radical Defense, um, and if you're looking for R A D I C L, we're missing yeah. an A. Um, and they're they're based out of Boulder. Uh, Chris Peterson, who was one of the was he actually a founder? He was, he was yeah, a he founder, founder of, uh, of Logarithm. Um, this is his new company to help uh, security of small and medium sized businesses. They've I don't know. They started maybe right before the pandemic, beginning uh, of the pandemic. I know we talked um, about them early on when, yeah. when it first came out and like we watched, remember there was a video like yes, describing it. There was a um, video. And at the time it was very vague about what right. they were going to do. Their mission was clear, right? They want to help defend uh, small and medium sized companies against cyber threat, but the actual way they're going to do it was unclear. I'd say whatever it is, two years later, still very unclear. We, we still don't know exactly what they're going to do. Granted, we haven't talked to them. So, you know, we could probably talk to them and maybe get some more details, but it's definitely not in this article. What is in this article is talking about the number of jobs that they're trying to create, which is around 500 um, over the next eight years. Yeah. Uh, and they can get uh, about two and a half million dollars of tax incentives um, if that happens. Yeah, it, it's it's neat to see. And, you know, if fi- they're, they're currently an eight person shop. So, you know, very small um, and if you think going from eight to 500 sounds unreasonable, well, that's exactly what they did at Logarithm. I think that, that's the kind of the 
prototype that they're looking to follow, you know, that type of growth. And, you know, if you have an experienced leadership team, it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility that they can go execute again. And the reason that they got the tax credits is there was some discussion of them uh, either expanding or, or moving this hiring to someplace else, specifically Florida. So uh, tax credits were given to, to keep them here and keep those jobs here. Well, I'm glad they were keeping them here. I am um, disappointed that they that they considered Florida, uh, considering they've they've had the the sweet sweet life of Colorado. Yeah, I, I could think of better. All right, uh, next story we have here is a is a blog from the Red Canary blog. You know, I think if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that we, like the Red Canary blog is just fantastic in terms of. Yeah, really full of technical detail on how to find bad things, how Red Canary specifically has identified bad things in the past, how you can up-level your own security operations using these things. And then no different this this month when they've got one about um, how to detect credential access across your organization. Yeah, and uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail on the blog, but there's a whole lot of detail in here. So if you uh, you know want to learn about uh, detecting misuse of credentials and uh, credential access, then definitely check this out. Uh, a lot of good detail in here. Um, talked about various things when, in Windows mostly, but in, uh, in other operating systems as well. Yeah, it, it's really, it, it is really in the weeds technical detail that frankly you could think of as training for your team. Um, they may not understand uh, exactly how to see credential misuse across these environments. And this is going to give them a bunch of specific examples and you could use it to look through your current ecosystem. You could use it to create rules to detect on things that when they happen in the future, really, really useful. And um, hopefully it'll give you guys a chance to, to up your game. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Uh, we have a, I guess it's a press release or report from, uh, from Laris talking about uh, top five penetration testing highlights from 2022. Uh, so they, in all of the penetration testing work that they did, they, they had some pretty common themes, uh, that they saw and, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, these are not going to shock people, but, uh, the first one is brute forcing accounts with weak or guessable passwords. Yeah. Uh, second one, uh, and, of, and of course, by the way, brute forcing accounts, like something that folks do, you've got to have MFA in place though. Right. <laughs> so this is, this is a, for organizations who didn't have MFA. Yeah. Um, number one or number two, rather is Kerber roasting which was misusing Kerberos tickets to get unauthorized access. Uh, next, excessive file system permissions. I can't imagine ever seeing any excessive file permissions anywhere. Uh, still, after all these years, r misusing the WannaCry slash Eternal Blue vulnerabilities. Uh, and then the last one was using uh, WMI or Windows Management Instrumentation for lateral movement, so built-in tools in Windows uh, to get around and, and stay persistent. Awesome. And I do love this. I think every year they give this like top things that they learned from pen testing the previous year. Look forward to seeing it. it I, I remember looking at it last year and I'm looking forward to seeing it again next year. All right. Our last story this week is uh, it's a nice one. It's, it's about a, a local security company, our identity security company called Strata, who just raised $26 million to become the market leader in identity orchestration. Uh, that seems like a good thing to be uh, trying to do. Uh, so they are are trying to tackle some areas that they think that other identity providers haven't done in the past well, which is uh, being able to combine um, sort of legacy auth and cloud auth and other things like that under one platform to make auth easier and more simple. So hopefully yeah. that happens. So this is their B round. Um, so I, I'd say this is kind of a smaller B round than we have seen over the last year or two. It feels like Bs have been getting much, much bigger recently. Um, this is probably healthier, to be honest with you. Uh, those $100 million Bs are, just encourage folks to go spend a ton of money on sales and marketing and, and blow a lot of cash. And you know, the, the world has changed a little bit here. Yeah, I, obviously more reflective of the current economic environment. Yeah. So. I, I do think the, the way you just described it was exactly how I would have summarized it. You know, this central platform where you can put all your identity providers into. Um, but that is like the the value prop of a ping and a forge rock too. And so it feels like you know, directly head to head with what those guys are doing in a pretty well-established market. Uh, love seeing local companies be successful. I'm curious what that's going to look like. Yeah. You know, I think it could be uh, coming into that market, um, you know, sort of fresh as opposed to some of the, the providers that have been around a little while and kind of put those things together as, as stuff has uh, come together. Anyway, uh, good luck to them. All right, uh, that is the news. Uh, moving on, we have events. So uh, got a lot of events coming up this month. Uh, the we, have, we have a calendar of events. We even have right. a calendar of events. Do you want to go see all the events we're going to talk about 
and a lot more, you can go out to colorado-security.com and click on the, the events link. Uh, the first on that list on February 8th, ISSA Denver is doing their February meetings, lunch and evening in transitioning to ISO 27001 2022. Uh, the ASIS Denver group, the physical security group in town is doing a biometric biometric access trends meeting on the 15th. On the 16th, ISOCA Denver is doing their February meeting in person with IIA. The CSA Colorado uh, February meeting is happening on the 21st. ISC Pikes Peak is doing their February meeting on the 22nd. On the 23rd, ASIS Denver is getting back and having a coffee chat with Misty Shepard. I don't know Misty, but maybe you can go get coffee with her. Uh, I like coffee. On the 24th, the Let's Talk Software Security Group is doing a meeting on vulnerability tracking and reporting. And then on March 2nd, one of the biggest events of the year is happening. This it, it, We were just talking about it. We can't believe how quickly it's come upon us. The uh, the Snowfrock Conference, OWASP's big annual event, a big AppSec conference where people will come in from um, around the region. They're going to be here in, I assume, back at the Cable Center. I believe uh, like so. Always. And um, it's a great conference, great speakers, great content. And the last event we have, um, also beginning of March on the 3rd, Colorado Springs uh, is doing their Cybersecurity First Friday. Good stuff. All right, let's jump over into jobs. Um, starting off the list this week, we have a security, uh, is it an analyst or engineer here? It's a IT sec security administrator. Oh yeah, IT security administrator from Noodles Company. And they're looking for someone who has some experience with CASB systems. Uh, Sierra Space is looking for a cybersecurity analyst three. The University of Colorado is hiring an information security officer. Tarumo BCT is looking for a product security engineer. Maximum is hiring an application security administrator. The city and county of Denver is looking for an information security architect. Looks like a pretty good job too. I was looking at that one. Oh, yeah. It looked really interesting. Cool. Uh, Prologis is hiring an IT governance risk and compliance manager. Western Union is looking for a group leader in cybersecurity engineering. Marathon Petroleum is hiring an internal auditor. And finally, RTD is looking for a senior cybersecurity engineer for access management. Good stuff. All right. That is it for the newscast. We do have an interview this week. Hallelujah. Uh, we, hallelujah. We uh, we had Douglas Brush, a uh, friend of the show and also has his own show, Cybersecurity Interviews. He sat down with David Staus, uh, a counsel at Hush Blackwell, and they talked about all the new privacy regulations around the country. Uh, we'd tell you about it, but it's private. And it, we had David on the show, I think about two years ago. Yeah, it's been a little while. Good to have him back on. And, you know, of course, great update for us to stay on top of all this, uh, uh, these changing laws. Ever changing. Looking forward to hearing it. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. And, and when we talk next, it will be March, which will be Oof. even crazier than February. Yes. Thanks, Rob. All right. Hi, this is Mary Haynes, VP of Network Security at Charter Communications. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. For Colorado security professionals, by Colorado security professionals. All right, David, thank you for joining me yet again on another episode of Colorado Equal Security, where we're talking an update in the, the data privacy stuff. I, I, we, we talked about a year ago, and you and I were obviously talking between then, what we thought would be kind of great for the audience is to give people a better idea of what has changed. Because even in you know pre-COVID, there was a lot of stuff going on in 2008 in various states. And now even in this year, as we get into 2023, uh, there seems to be this this evolving cadence of new and upcoming laws. When we spoke at lunch recently, you know, I kind of jokingly said, are, I'm sure you you and all your privacy attorneys are all doing rich now that, you know, there's multiple state laws in effect as of January 1, and everybody must be uh, rushing to enforce it. But really, what, what's the reality of what we're seeing versus what are some of the state law changes over the past year or two in where that's going to lead a lot of people in how they have to worry about their privacy programs as it relates to security. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, first, thanks for having me again on the, on the podcast and, uh, you know, thrilled to have a chance to talk to your listeners again, uh, to answer your question, we have now five state privacy laws. Uh, California was first and everybody knows that the California consumer privacy act, um, that went into effect in 2020. And the big piece of the puzzle there is that that law was substantially amended on January 1st of this year when the uh, California Privacy Rights Act amendments went into effect. Uh, and also the business to business and the employee exemptions sunsetted, which are the big things as of January 1st. 
we're still waiting for California to finish the regulations around the uh, the new updated version of the law. Um, that could be done pretty soon. We expect that final regulations published, and then hey, you have to go through a administrative process of getting those to be legit with a couple of votes and reviews. Uh, separate from that, we have Virginia that went into effect. That was January 1st, the Virginia Consumer Data Protection Act went into effect. Um, and then we've got three other states that will be following. Colorado and Connecticut will go into effect on July 1st of this year, 2023. And then Utah happens at the end of the year. So that's what's done right now. What is still on the way are, you know, the state, it's, we're recording is January 24th, just that, you know, dates are kind of important uh, given how fast things are moving right now. Uh, but we have now 10 or 11, depending upon how you look at the bills, states that have introduced uh, proposed consumer privacy legislation similar to these five state bills. Uh, we've got Oregon, Oklahoma, Hawaii, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, Iowa, New York, Massachusetts, and you know if you count the bills, New Jersey that rolled over into this session. There's more to come. Uh, we expect to see bills in uh, Michigan and Minnesota get introduced in the coming days, and uh, the potential for other states to join in as well. Uh, the other piece of the puzzle now that we are closely tracking is we have these broad consumer privacy bills, but we're also getting these sectoral bills that are getting proposed on a state level. And so what that means is uh, we are seeing children's privacy bills, health privacy bills, biometric privacy bills, algorithmic discrimination bills, and automated decision-making bills get proposed in the state level. So we are uh, rapidly adding to the amount of stuff that we need to track on the state level. Um, and it's becoming much more nuanced around, you know, not just that there was a bill introduced, but, you know, what would it do? What industries would it impact and, and how would it uh, change, if anything, um, the existing structure of these five state privacy bills that we have, laws that we have, I should say. Yeah. And with that, you know, it's, I always find it interesting because people maybe correctly or incorrectly kind of conflate a lot of the privacy and data breach notifications laws, statutes, and various forms of regulation. Um, what really kind of was sticking around, uh, around that? Because I think that that's a, an important part to say, well, you know, there's no, there's, there's obligation for many organizations to notify a potential damage um, and notify participants you know, or people that could be impacted. But really, what, what is the difference when it comes to data privacy? It seems to be more about, you know, what's being collected, what's being stored and managed and ultimately disposed of. Yeah, right. It's, you know, our, our typical data breach laws are all 50 states have them now. If if, if you're uh, you lose data, obviously, if you have a breach um, and it involves a certain type of data and that's a more much more narrow, narrower set of data uh, name and so, social security number name and you know, credit card information, those types of things, um, then you've got to notify people, you know, consumers and maybe the attorney general's office, maybe consumer reporting agencies. Uh, these privacy bills are, like you said, these are around uh, transparency and rights around, you know, it, the individual consumer's right to transparency. So, i.e. your privacy notice, what do you collect, how do you use it, how do you share it, your rights around that. So the right to access, delete, port, correct, um, opt out of targeted advertising and sale of information. Um, and then they also have some other things, aspects to them, things like data protection assessments. So an upfront requirement to you know, vet your privacy processing activity. I'm sorry, your privacy, vet your processing activity um, and ensure that um, it's, it's doing the right things. Um, and then also to enter into contracts, data processing agreements. Those two aspects are, are really taken from uh, the European Union's uh, GDPR. Um, and now they're part of the state privacy bills. Um, and then we get so, you know, and, and I mean, we're in Colorado and I was remiss but to not mention that the Colorado Attorney General's office is engaging in rulemaking right now around the Colorado Privacy Act. And, you know, there's a lot of nuance in the regulations. There's a lot of nuance between these state privacy bills, for example, in Colorado, at least as it exists right now in the draft, uh, the draft rules. They, they talk about sensitive data inferences and rights around sensitive data inferences um, and other nuance. Um, so. There's commonality uh, among these laws, but there's also nuance that really matters when you go to comply. Yeah, a lot of it seems to be too, and some of the challenges I've seen coming from GDPR is 
what constitutes data. Um, different state regulators, countries can have different ways of identifying what is, you know, concerning. For example, um, in some of the APAC territories, there's concerns about information around um, adoption, and that becomes a high proxy. Do you see? Where do, you, where do you see that playing out in the United States? Where there, there is there going to be challenges for organizations to have to comply with all these different things because everybody's kind of doing it a hodgepodge, or is there some kind of common ground that somebody can apply to their privacy program and not feel like they're spending all day chasing the, the tangentials? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's it's what we talk to our clients about um, pretty much daily, right? Is you know, can we have, I have one client who, uh, you know, the one ring to rule them all, the Lord of the Rings reference um, to address data privacy. Um, and, you know, that there's a lot, there's a lot to that, right? I mean, we try to develop programs and disclosures and agreements and data uh, processing um, reviews, uh, the, the data protection assessments I referred to earlier. We try to develop those that they comply with all the state privacy laws. And even if you have federal ones that are wrapped in, I mean, there are still you know federal laws that, that may be implicated here, depending upon exemptions and exceptions to the laws. So in any event, um, you know, we talk a lot about exactly those issues. I think that, you know, California stands alone, right? California has a model that differs from the other models. And it's important to understand sort of the, the background here. California passes its law. And it's the, the result of the ballot measure. I think people know that story. Um, the other laws that have passed in the other four states are based on a different model. They're based on a bill that was drafted by Senator Carlisle in Washington state. It never passed Washington state, but that bill was uh, used as a basis for lawmakers in Virginia, Utah, Colorado, and Connecticut as a basis for their uh, laws. And so uh, those four states, there's a lot of commonality uh, there's differences, but there's a lot of commonality there where that's becoming, um, you know, the predominant model in the, the state bills that get proposed, that Washington Privacy Act model. We tend to look at those and we tend to say, OK, is it more um, is it the Virginia model, which is a middle of the road uh, model? Is it Utah, which is extremely business friendly model of the law of the bill, I should say, or is it, you know, Colorado, Connecticut, which are more consumer friendly? Um, so we take those four and we kind of group those together. And then we look at the nuances of the California when we're trying to come up with, a, you know, one approach to it. Um, and there are pain points. Um, you know, generally, I think the definition of personal information, personal data in those laws aligns. California is a much different approach in Section 1798-140. They define it really by a prescriptive list of, of things. But there's also a catch-all phrase of like anything that's reasonably capable of being associated with the individual consumer so there's alignment there, but you know where we find problems are around like the privacy policy drafting, um, how prescriptive California is and its approach and the rules versus the other states, which you know we'll see where Colorado lands in regulations, but the other states are less prescriptive, um, and we still have a lot to, to learn about California as well. There's uh, partial rulemaking happening right now in California, but there's going to be further rulemaking on cybersecurity audit, audits and um, uh, automated decision making. And a few other topics. Yeah, and, and I think we talked a little bit about this recently. But you know, what what is really driving a lot of these states to to really take action on this to start passing some of this this legislation? I, I can certainly see it being a nice bi bipartisan issue that anybody can get behind. But um, what, what's really the kind of motive and, and impetus for a lot of these? Yeah, and. It's simple. It's it's federal inaction, right? And so we, you know, I don't want to plug my own podcast on your podcast, but we we run a podcast in which we interview state lawmakers, and I can I can't tell you how many we're up to maybe ten or twelve state lawmakers who have run these these consumer privacy bills. And I always ask that that exact question. I say, why why are you doing this? And it is always the same answer, which is the federal government needs to do this, and it won't. And so state lawmakers, you know, they see a big issue that needs to be tackled and they are going to tackle it. And each one will tell you that this should happen on a federal level. Now, what that looks like is a whole different story. And we had, you know, we had a federal bill, the ADPPA, get very, uh, well, very far is not the right way, further than any uh, bill in recent memory. And it got out of a committee, a House committee, and it actually got killed by California, of all places. 
because um, the California delegation, the, the governor, the uh, attorney general, they did not want the federal bill to preempt these state laws. They wanted the, the states to be able to go further in regulating this. And in particular, around the f idea that this is a rapidly changing area, the states should be able to go further. Uh, so it's, it's interesting now, like the state, um, the existence of state bills is now um, becoming this really interesting pushback on um, passing federal legislation. I don't know that we would have gotten across the finish line anyway. There was a, a huge roadblock in the, in the Senate with Senator Cantwell. She didn't like the federal, uh, she didn't like the bill, the ADPPA. But by and large, to answer your question, it is it is federal inactivity. And, and like I mentioned before, the, the, the conversation's changing. Uh, and, and, and yet that nuance is really important because, you know, these other issues, these general consumer privacy bills that have gotten passed in these five states, um, lawmakers are, are, are tackling other privacy topics. Last year in California, they, paged, uh, they passed the California Age Appropriate Design Code. Uh, Assembly member Wicks uh, was a bill sponsor on, on that, and that uh, seeks to regulate children's privacy. It's a very controversial bill. It's going to be subject to uh, a lawsuit that's going to challenge it based on First Amendment uh, and preemption issues and Section 230 issues and void uh, for vagueness issues. Um, but, you know, California has gone on and they've they've um, they pursued that uh, uh, legislation because the federal government won't. Uh, and then other topics, like I mentioned before as well, like data broker bills, um, that was part of the ADPPA, the federal bill. Um, we have two states that have passed it, California and Vermont. Other state bills are looking at it. Oregon has one. Delaware had one last year. It did not pass. Um, the Michigan bill that got introduced last year and will be uh, reintroduced this year. Uh, I, I will have one last year. I, I, I understand it will have one this coming year as well. Um, biometric privacy bills, you know, those are those, those nasty BIPA bills where you get to sue and have a prior right of action over the collection of biometric information. Those bills have started to creep up in a number of states this year as well. So until the federal government does something, these state lawmakers are going to keep legislating and it's going to be on more and more topics. And I think I mentioned at the beginning, but AI, algorithmic discrimination, uh, mark my words that that is going to be something that in a few years from now, we are going to be talking about those bills. It's like it's like you're you're seeing the softballs before you throw them. Uh, I mean that was kind of where I was going because I know there was, you know, a kind of a takeaway from you know particularly at the federal level where the White House in September pushed out you know the enhancing competition and platform accountability. Now obviously a lot of that was was based on antitrust focus, but underlying that was a lot of data privacy stuff and particularly around. AI, do we see that maybe the federal government's going to pick up along those those routes? Um, as something to kind of maybe differentiate, differentiate their lawmaking as opposed to some of the states? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the, you know, if you're a betting man, right, the answer to anything that the, uh, the question of will the federal government, the answer is no, right, if you're a betting man. Uh, yeah, they came out with uh, an AI bill of rights, the White House did over the summer. Like you said, there's been general tech uh, legislation, uh, there's been privacy legislation that's been proposed. There's been a Kids Online Safety Act uh, proposed in the Senate. Um, there's been no shortage of talk on the federal level on a bunch of different issues, um, but nothing has gotten across the finish line. Now, you know, a big caveat there would be the Federal Trade Commission is engaging in potential rulemaking now around commercial surveillance. And so, you know, that is a that is a long process that needs to be, go through with the FTC. Um, but that could be a game changer if they came out with, with rules uh, and how broad they were. And that's, you know, there's no draft right now. Basically, they put out uh, requests for comments on a number of different topics. And so we're going through that process now. It feels like given our uh, where we are on federal legislation with the, the House flipping to Republicans, it feels like things have stalled legislatively. So maybe the FTC is going to be the answer. But you never know. I mean, things can change. You know, last week, uh, Senator, uh, Senator President Biden was uh, wrote an, an op-ed talking about, well, you know, at a minimum, we need to address children's privacy. And there is general alignment between parties that children's privacy needs to be addressed. And we see that at the state level, we see that at the federal level. So that might be one area where they can carve off and they can actually do something on, on an area that everybody um that everybody seems to, to, to believe needs to be needs to be addressed. 
Yeah, you know, to quote the Simpsons, won't somebody please think about the children? It, se- it seems like an easy one to get behind because who's really going to say, no, I don't, I don't care about kids. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's no, really fun. Yeah, right. It's, I mean, easy, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's funny, right? When these bills, these bills are subject of extensive um, lobbying efforts and stakeholder efforts. But typically when it gets to the to a vote on the floor, typically you see very few no votes, right? Because who is against privacy, Right. And to your point, like who is against children, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just it's it's a it's it's not exactly uh, something that you want to run against where your opponent can say, you know, this was the guy who, who voted against children's privacy. Right. It may have been because the bill didn't work. But, you know, do, do, do your constituents, you know, appreciate that type of nuance. Right. So uh, that's why, you know, so much of the action here happens, you know, before these get to the floor votes and committees and, you um, yeah, and we've been a part of that with um, working through that process for some, and and it is a very robust process, the stakeholdering process. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to know. You know, I think a lot of folks, you know, like, really with any law, doesn't they? People just don't know how really the sausage is made, and, and the amount of parties that get involved with that. So maybe if you can walk through some examples of how that, you know we talked about Virginia, and we, we all know there was a heavy tech focus on that, but. Um, no, quite frankly, these things don't happen in a vacuum, and there's a lot of competing interests and competing voices. But kind of, it just kind of maybe shed some light out of that because I, I think people just don't know. Yeah, so I mean, it can be a, a pretty lengthy process, right? Um, I'll give you an example: uh, Michigan, right? I mentioned that before. So Senator Bayer there introduced a bill in September. Well, a legislative session closed in December, so she knew when she introduced the bill that it was DOA, right? But the thought was, I'm going to introduce this bill so that way I can have, you know, the stakeholders who are interested in this contact me. And so it's not like state lawmakers are sitting there and uh, by and large, you know, sitting there with a Rolodex of people who care about a bill. You'd be surprised at the types of entities that might care about a consumer privacy bill. I mean, there was in Connecticut, um, it was uh, Restaurant Association was very engaged in the discussion. Um, in other places, it could be like grocery chains, those types of things, because, you know, these things can, can touch a lot of different areas, right? Small businesses can be very concerned about it. It's not just the big techs of the world. Um, and, and sometimes big tech is, is the least of the problem because big tech is sophisticated on these issues and they're complying with GDPR and, and they want to keep things, you know, to what they know for sure. But, you know, by, like Microsoft actually tends to go out and support all of these bills and has people testify in, in support of them. So like that. Those, those, those distinctions really matter. Uh, but, you know, so you'll, you'll put out a, a bill, um, you'll go through the stakeholder process, re- receive a lot of comments on that one. And if you're at the state level, you know, the, the resources are kind of limited, right, for, for state lawmakers. It, it really depends upon the individual state about how much resources they have as far as, you know, uh, legislative research, uh, looking at other state laws. It really depends, too, about whether the state attorney's general office is engaged in the process um, and whether they are out there doing the research and doing the negotiation. So in Oregon, for example, Oregon had a work group this past summer in the fall where they, they work group and, and worked on each section of a bill with a work group of about 40 people. There's a small table of about 10 to 12 people and a larger table of about 40 people. So there, you know, they've tried to build the stakeholdering process into the bill before they introduce it. Uh, that happened in Connecticut last year as well, where Senator Maroney ran a work group. Uh, his bill had failed the year before. He ran a work group and got alignment around various issues. Um, and so people couldn't say that they hadn't had their opportunity to talk in the comment. And that's a big piece of the puzzle, too. So, yeah, you go through this process, right? And you go through the process with, with the stakeholders, you know, which are, tend to be lobbyists. Um, and they, 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 it's a full gamut. Like I said, I mean, you can have privacy advocates, you can also have tech advocates, um, and you can have, you know, people who, who don't fit into either of those, right. Have individual interests. Um, and you try to make the bill work and you try to get alignment and then you have to deal with, you know, your fellow, uh, lawmakers and get, and get co-sponsors and you want to get bipartisan sponsors and you want to get bicameral sponsorship because, great, you got your bill through the Senate, but it died in the House. And that happened a bunch last year because, you know, you got to line up advocates in both chambers that are pushing this legislation and are, are invested in it. And like I said, the attorney general's office is a big piece of that puzzle, too, because these these laws are enforced uh, to date. These laws are enforced by attorney general's office. And it's been the case where you, know, you want to have AG support behind a bill 
Um, and if you do, that's that's a good indication that you got a lot of traction. So, I, I mean, I think for, for listeners who are out there, it, it is a long and laborious process. And I, I've said in other, other venues, and I, I, I'll say it here, it, it is very hard to pass a good consumer privacy bill. It is very hard. It's easy to pass a bad one. You can get a bad one passed in, in three weeks. Uh, but to pass a good one that tries to do and tackle a bunch of these issues, every issue you throw into a bill is going to be subject to debate. And you need, a, you need an advocate. You need a bill sponsor who's passionate about this and is going to sit down and spend the long hours to navigate through these extremely thorny issues. Which then kind of begs the question is, okay, we, we go through this, this process and then there's enforcement. Uh, I think we've seen this with a lot of things. Is any law, any bill can pass that says, hey, thou shalt, but what, what does the enforcement actions look like? This, uh, you know, some of the things that, that I picked up from the, the different countries and entities and territories inside GDPR and other states, it's great. A lot of this was passed. We believe in it, but then there was just not enough people to do the enforcement actions. Could that be a concern here? Yeah, uh, that is the give and take is, you know, privacy advocates will tell you these bills need prior rights of action uh, to be enforceable. Um, and then, you know, business advocates will tell you that AG enforcement works and that there's a huge risk be, be, uh, with, with private enforcement. Um, yeah, and I'm not here to opine on, on either. I have my own opinions on that. What I'll say is uh, we, we honestly don't know yet whether AG enforcement is going to work. Um, the California law is the only one that's been on the books to date that had a right to cure. Um, that sunsetted January 1st, but the AG's office you know, was required to give you a notice um, that said, hey, here's your violations. And then yeah, you had an opportunity to cure those violations. And, you know, they, they did uh, by their own uh, uh, statements, they did, you know, hundreds of, of, of investigations, notice letters. And only one company, Sephora, uh, did not cure the notice and they were fined one point two million dollars. So that is the only public enforcement action that we have right now is one point two million. But, you know, the, the threat of enforcement um, definitely got a number, uh, many, many companies to, to get aligned. Uh, the other states, you know, if you look at the other four uh, laws, uh, Utah and um, Virginia have rights to cure and those rights, rights to cure do not sunset. So, you know, if you get written up for uh, a violation in Virginia, you're going to have the right to cure that. I think it's 30 or 60 days. I can't recall off the top of my head. Um, and that's going to exist. I mean, so, you know, does that does that create a strong uh, enforcement mechanism? Uh, I mean, make your own opinion there. But, you know, if you had the right to cure, then the AG's office is, you know, motivated differently. Now, Connecticut and Colorado are similar to California in the sense that once those laws go into effect in July of this year, there's going to be an 18 month period in which you will have the right to cure and add to that at sunsets. So in a couple of years time, what you're going to see is you're going to see what I call the three C's of state privacy law, California, Connecticut and Colorado, that are going to have the ability to engage in multi-state enforcement actions because they don't have the right to cure. Right. So they can come out of the gate. They can file a complaint. They can do their investigations and the companies don't have the right to cure those violations. Meanwhile, you know, Virginia and Utah, to the extent that they wanted to jump in, we first had to you know, allow the companies to, to cure the violation. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but it just really changes the enforcement mechanism. Last piece of the puzzle then is the California uh, Privacy Rights Act created a new agency called the California Privacy Protection Agency. And that agency will have shared enforcement responsibility with the California Attorney General's office. Um, so, you know, that uh, that creates a whole other dynamic. There's administrative enforcement through the California Privacy Rights Act. That doesn't start until July of this year. And so we really have to see what that's going to play out. But the enforcement issue, I, I do think we will see, you know, at least in those three C's, I do think we are going to see enforcement. Uh, those attorney generals and, and the California Privacy Protection Agency, they are motivated to do things. And, and uh, you did touch on something I do have to pick at the scab a little bit. I mean, I, I have to wonder, too, and again, I'm biased based on some of the work I've been doing in data privacy litigation lately is is there going to be this an uptick in 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 data privacy litigation data breach litigation because i can certainly see the plaintiffs bar looking at it from perspective of saying as these laws there's obviously more uh, awareness about them and with these laws coming in could there be civil actions as a form of enforcement because hey look you know consumers were harmed and, and we can we can make an argument for that and there's been the private right of action thrown around in a couple states is is this something that could 
potentially get momentum? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, in California, there is a limited prior right of action for data breaches. Um, it's not for the general privacy rights, it's for data breaches. Now, that, that did not stop plaintiffs from filing uh, lawsuits over CCPA violations, and they try you know, to articulate uh, arguments around that, um, to use general consumer privacy statutes to argue there's been violations of the CCPA. But you know, each of these laws past the date says this law will not create a prior right of action, right? except for that one caveat I gave you in California. Uh, I think what we are seeing, though, is really, I mean, we've got our BIPA litigation, so that's our Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Set that aside. That's, that's you know, tracking. And, and, you know, there was a huge judgment or huge um, uh, a jury verdict over the summer uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars against the company. So that's its own beast. Uh, but what we're seeing a lot of now are plaintiffs, uh, lawyers getting very inventive in uh, looking at very old statutes like the Video Privacy Protection Act or uh, Invasion of Privacy Act statutes and claiming that there's privacy violations for things like session replay technology, um, the use of the Facebook pixel in certain instances, um, and you know, chat features as well. And so we are seeing you know, uh, these opportunistic uh, lawsuits filed alleging privacy violations, and that's really becoming... It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to it's hard for, for clients to drive compliance. We have our own things that we do with clients to mitigate the risk there uh, around disclosure and, and consent. Um, but, you know, every it seems like every six months, a new theory around tracking technology litigation pops up. And, you know, we're trying to, uh, uh, you know, work it through the court system. And, and, you know, a lot of that, it depends upon the location. California has been more favorable to consumer complaints. Uh, Florida, less so. Um, and it depends on the statutes that issue as well. So, you know, it, it's it's maybe it's, it's a popular refrain, but I mean, it's just there's just a ton going on out there. I mean, it 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 makes you really want to have one federal standard to comply with, uh, and we just don't have it right now. Well, as you know, as we kind of look forward, just even on the state side, what are just to kind of it kind of earmarks some of these things and we touched on them, but if you can kind of, make, what, what is what's looking forward for Colorado uh, this year? You know, what are some of the things that consumers and businesses should be kind of keeping a track on? Yeah. So in Colorado, I mean, the big piece is July 1st of this year, the Colorado Privacy Act goes into effect. The AG's office is engaged in rulemaking right now. There's a hearing on February 1st, maybe this publishes after or before, I don't know, but there's a, there's a public hearing on February 1st. Um, and, you know, we'll see revised rules at some point in time. I don't pretend to know the schedule um, that hasn't been published, right? But they, they need to get it done. I, I think, you know, reading the tea leaves, I, I, I think we'll have it done by April. Um, but, you know, who knows remains to be seen. Uh, so if you're subject to it, and, you know, you should look, it's the threshold issue is, is 100,000 consumers in a B2C capacity. You need to be processing that information in controller capacity. And there's a bunch of exemptions as well. Like if you're a GLBA, uh, there's, a, there's a straight up exemption. So it's important to look at the, the law and see if you're, you're covered. But that's it, you know, for that's the big piece. And there was a lot of nuance there. We have yet to see any bills filed in Colorado on consumer privacy this session, uh, but the session's not over. And, you know, we've got some time to go. So I think, you know, looking to see whether we get any bills filed on things like children's privacy or biometric information privacy. Um, you know, because, you know, Colorado is, is now a very blue state uh, in the 2020 election. Uh, Polis won and Democrats extended their majorities in each of the chambers. Uh, and obviously, Weiser is the attorney general in Colorado and very interested in particular. Um, uh, he had a recent LinkedIn post saying that one of the things he wanted to do in his second term was focus on teen mental health. Well, big piece of teen mental health is is privacy, um, uh, teen privacy, I should say. So anyway, yeah, I, I mean, the big the big upcoming iceberg is the Colorado Privacy Act um, for people to kind of get their their arms wrapped around, either because it's the first time they've had to deal with privacy if they're a regional company or because they're trying to figure out how to fold that into their California compliance program. Excellent. And I'd say finally, as we kind of wrap this up, you know, how can people get involved with this? You know, you kind of hear 
some of the things that I, some of the takeaways I have here is that, you know, the, the legislative branches and, and lawmakers look for input, you know, but I, I think people don't know where to start looking for that. Are there organizations? Are there ways that folks can be engaged so they can have their voice heard as these laws develop? Yeah. So great question. And, um, you know, for the, the Colorado rulemaking is ongoing right now. If you want, you can go on the Colorado Attorney General's website and you can put in comments uh, to, to the Colorado Attorney General's office. It is a public, uh, it's, it's a public comment period. Like I said, there's a hearing. Anybody can testify at the hearing. I think you know, the Attorney General's office has encouraged everyone who has an interest in it to, to, to have their say. And I, I encourage people to do that as well, right? I mean, don't think just because you may have, you know, you may not have everything figured out. You may have something very important figured out, right? Um, and I think the more voices you get and the more, People who are engaged in the process, the better uh, better the process is, is my opinion on the whole thing. Um, as far as you know, when the bills come out, um, I think the best methodology is if you well, a read it, <laughs> read the bill when it comes out. If you feel passionately about it, if you feel like something needs to be changed, um, I think that's the kind of the benefit of state lawmaking. I mean, state state lawmakers, you can email them and say, "Hey, here's my here's my you know thoughtful comments on your bill, and and I think you should do X, Y, and Z." And at the state level, people tend to listen. Uh, they, they tend to listen. I can't say what it is in the federal level, but the state level, like, you know, that's that's backyard hometown lawmaking. And it's kind of lawmaking in my mind, it kind of it's in its purest version. Right. Where, uh, you know, a lot of these guys who are and women who are in the, the, the state legislature is not making a career out of it. They want to make they want to do it right. And they want to listen to a bunch of voices. So. Yeah, I think, you know, encouraging people to raise your hand and engage in the process and, uh, you know, it's uh, tell people that it's important to you and it's important and it gets done right. Well, David, thank you so much for this year's update. Hopefully we can do this again next year. There'll be even more to talk about, but where, where can folks find you online to kind of keep track of what you're doing and all these things as they're emerging? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so we, we run a privacy blog. It's called bitebacklaw.com, B-Y-T-E. B-A-C-K-Law.com. Uh, we push out weekly updates uh, what, when the legislative sessions are hot. We push out uh, weekly updates on um, on all these bills that we've been talking about. So if you'd like to try, uh, track us, then that's the place. Subscribe to BiteBackLaw.com. Awesome, David. Thank you. We'll make sure that gets, uh, gets pushed out there in the show notes as well. But thank you again for your time today and uh, hope to see you out there at different events. Thanks, Doug. Really appreciate it. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.